is not like TV only better. Television, teacher, mother, secret lover. What? That's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. Folks, this is Screenwatching. My name is Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. On this podcast, we talk about what we've watched, and that might be movies, it might be TV shows, it might be something else on a screen in some way. Um, I don't know what sort of dark terrain that Simon Foster is, you know, eking his way through on the internet, but hopefully there's no sort of dark web activity or, you know, any sort of unsavory stuff we don't want to talk about. But if that's what he's been watching, then that's what we talk about. Anyway, the aforementioned Simon Foster, so how are you this week? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. It's funny you go down that path, because not literally 20 Wait, minutes ago. sorry, before... think, is this something you really want to say out loud, Simon? <laughs> we are recording. I, for some some reason, somewhere along the line, I I subscribe to email updates from Again, CBS Simon, USA. Is, again, Wait. is this something you want to say? I subscribe to email updates from Cine Kink US, which is a film festival in New York City, which handles um, all sorts of things in the manner of, um, uh, as the title might suggest. They're doing a 50th anniversary screening of Deep Throat, the classic 70s porn film. And I've used the term classic for my brothers and sisters out there who had a scratchy VHS copy of it. Um, so, yeah, things did get dirty. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, hope you're well, Dan Barrett. And, yeah, tough week this week. A lot of work kind of didn't quite fall into place the way I wanted it to. Not a lot of things to review, but I'll make the most of it this week. And, uh, quite frankly, I'm glad to be here talking to you and the fellow screen watchers just to, to, to liven things up. Yeah, I sent some messages to Simon and I was just sort of met back with videos of, do you remember that guy who was really upset about Britney Spears on the internet a few years ago? Uh, it was basically Simon was just the exact same. It was just like video message after video message. I couldn't even I make said, out what he was saying. There were just too many sobs on the videos. <laughs> I said to you on that day that I was ready to down tools, open a big bag of Doritos and start binge watching Ghost Adventures. Um, what I did in fact do, because mm. I needed to feel like I achieved something that day, see the uh, the beautiful physical media wall behind me, I strip that down, reverse the alphabetical order um, so that all the discs that were behind the, the front row are now in the front row. Um, it was a very fulfilling five hours work, I've got to say. So um, things are good. Sorry, I hear about work like that and I just assume you've got an exam due the next day. It's good to be here. What are we talking about on this week's show, Dan Barrett? <laughs> Look, so we are in the depths of, I mean, depths is the word because, yeah. boy, is this a, uh, let's reach and see what we can pull out of the ether to discuss stuff. <laughs> so I've actually got something fairly good I want to talk about, which is this drama called 61st Street. This is a show okay. that's in its second season and both the seasons are now streaming on Stan. Uh, what's notable about this show is it was an AMC Plus series when it first debuted. However, it was AMC Plus and nobody saw it. However, yes. what, what's exciting is that the CW in the US, they are stopping, they stop production on everything. And all those DC superhero shows, all but one of them is cancelled. Like they've gotten out of that business entirely. And what they decided to do with their schedule going forward is to stack it with just a whole bunch of imported dramas and comedies and whatnot, one of the things that they bought was this show, 61st Street. And I'll be honest, like I knew it was a show that existed. I hadn't really given it much of a look. It's got a bit of a dull name. The 
art for it didn't really look all that compelling it just kind of looked like it was just one of these shows that have been made as a result of peak tv anyway i'm going to give that a look because the show is yeah the the show is now out in the world and yeah this this show is a sequel to the streets from zero through to 60 but this is the 61st street so the the gag but i'm glad you did sorry i had to get out there so anyway i'm going to talk about 61st streets uh, I'm also going to talk about a new Netflix animated series. It's called Captain Fall, which did debut two weeks ago, but I figure nobody's talking about it, so I might do a bit of a discussion about that because there's nothing new this week really worth talking about. And Simon, got, you've got some yep. new movies. Well, movies is a term that's bandied around a lot nowadays. <laughs> Meg to the Trench is in wide release, but I've got a few choice words to say about that. And also a Netflix title, which debuted two weeks ago, which nobody's talking about because it was made five years ago, is a new Jackie Chan, John Cena buddy action film called Hidden Strike. Boy, I've got a few paths to go down with that one. It hasn't been a dull week at the at the on the screens that we watch. Uh, the Melbourne Film Festival opened last night, to, um, uh, and they've got one of their biggest programs over the next couple of weeks. We farewell the wonderful Paul Rubens, who we know as, as Pee Wee Herman. Were you obviously you're a Pee Wee fan? Who's not a Pee Wee fan? Yeah, look, I grew up. I've got eyes. I care. Yeah. Oh, one of the funniest moments I've had watching a movie is when he takes off on the motorbike after doing the dance in the the biker bar and crashes the motorbike through like three billboards. It was just one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. Um, Logie's controversy with that old racist Sonia Kruger, alleged racist, I think we have to say, to avoid litigation, winning the gold Logie. You got any opinion on that? Didn't even know this was a thing. Yeah, Sonia Kruger won the gold leg, and everybody's a bit of gog after the comments she made a few years ago regarding Muslims, but we'll skim over that and hope someone better wins it next time. And I noticed on your Always Be Watching newsletter that uh, the Max brand bled subs in the wake of the rebrand from when it went from HBO Max um, to just Max, something like 1.8, I want to say, off the top of my head. Oh, it was about 2 million. So look... Here's the thing. So they went for, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I want to say it dropped from like 97 something million subscribers globally to 95 something million. It was thereabouts. Yep. Basically what happened was, in, so we're recording this on the 4th of August, 2023. Um, overnight, there was the, or in the early hours this morning, really, there was the um, quarterly earnings call from Warner Brothers Discovery. But what the quarter that they're talking about is the same quarter that saw the Max rebrand happen from HBO Max to Max. Mm-hmm. We don't have Max in Australia or HBO Max for that matter. Um, they were sets launched and then not, and then you know probably got another year or two before that happens now. But when they did the relaunch, uh, the experience of it was that on that day you load up your HBO Max because you want to watch the fancy HBO programming of the day, and then you just got a big message on the screen saying, "Sorry, you now have to download the Max app instead." So it takes you to a link, and you have to you know download the new app. So when they did the earnings call this morning, uh, you got people like David Zaslav, who's the CEO. And he said that we were expecting some um, churn taking place uh, as we move from HBO Max to Max. Okay. And like, churn I suddenly appreciate. An term for, churn being an industry term for flux, a little bit of sort of unknown. Yeah. Some subscribers dropping away, others yeah. signing up. And so, you know, there's the churn number. Yeah. yeah. 
So he's like he said that, and I thought about that, and I thought, well, look, if you're expecting to lose two million plus subscribers because you've changed your app, then you haven't educated your audience particularly well as to what's going on. You haven't educated them on what the benefits are of downloading the new app. But then on top of that as well, like, what are you doing from a technology standpoint? Where, from from my perspective, if I looked at the apps, like there was very little difference. There was a bit of moving things around on the screen, but it was still kind of the same experience from a UI perspective with Except a few changes here and there. Like things in the background may have uh, changed quite dramatically, but I also don't know why it's not just an update of the app and it's a new app that you're downloading based on that account. Like. I don't understand. I'm not a technological, um, you know, whiz. I, I've never built apps before, so I don't quite know exactly some of the intricacies there. But it just strikes me. I don't know why it's not an app update rather than, you know, a new release. So why are they losing two million people just because they've changed their app? That seems and a little bit to high. Put a spin on it. it seems ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. And so you also look at what's happened with the Max relaunch, which is from a audience consumption experience. People sign up to HBO Max because they like fancy dramas. They like their high-end HBO scripted stuff. They like some of home the... Of Sex third, of the City, Home third of party, the yeah. Sopranos, Home but of that's the That's it. So all the HBO series. stuff, all the movies that they have on there, and then some of the other required Warner Brothers stuff in there, and then some like DC animated stuff, and uh, a few kids' things like Sesame Street sort of bundled in. Like, that's why you've signed up to it. But with the Max relaunch, all that stuff's pushed to the background because he really needs to like sell people on the idea of watching Discovery content Okay, because they've got this very large library of Discovery content. But the thing is, the HBO Max audience weren't there for Discovery content. So now they're sitting there with all this Discovery content. And look, I would assume that most people are probably looking at this going, well, why am I subscribed to this service? Because I don't care about whatever home renovation show. I don't care about this cooking program. I just want to see Tony Soprano um, doing all sorts of unsavory business. I want to be able to watch The Leftovers. I want all that other gear. Are the Discovery people, is that sort of aimed at my crowd who, who do all the Bigfoot expeditions well, and his, uh, ghost adventures and all that kind of stuff? Simon, this is the bullshit thing that Zaslav and co have done, which is that if you're a Discovery person and you're only really interested in the reality content, you can still subscribe to the original Discovery Plus app, which costs mm. less money. Like, why wouldn't you just stick there? I, like, I don't know what the draw card is. Yeah. Sorry? Now we're seeing whether two million, sorry, might have. Um, that, that's exactly it. So, explanation for the drop off. In an well, ordinary okay. environment, in an ordinary environment, Simon, I'd say, well, let's look at the next quarter and see if they regain those two million people with the exciting new content coming. But this quarter, they've barely got anything new that's launched. Also, there's strike activity happening, which means that the production pipeline has come to a standstill. And where are they going to be finding new subscribers from? Because they're not really offering anything, which is particularly that compelling. Like it's just is not it there. Is it fair to say that Zavlav's skating on thin ice at the moment? Does he seem to sort of hurtling forward with plans that haven't quite been thought through to the, the nth degree? Here's the thing. I know that Wall Street is responding negatively to what they've announced uh, in the last couple of hours. So we'll see how that plays out over the next few days. Uh, but then the other thing as well is that the expectation is that within the next uh, four or five months, the year-long um, restriction that's put in place from a governmental policy perspective is that they can't make any acquisitions or the company can't be sold because they're just finishing up their merger of the Warner Brothers and Discovery um, companies. So once that's merged properly, once that 12-month period's finished up, and it was in, I think, May last year that it went through. So, you know, we've still got 
Actually, no, it was earlier than that. But anyway, we've still got like at least over half a year until that happens. So after that, there'll be the potential for some M&A activity. We may see Warner Brothers sold to Comcast. We might see them do a purchase of the Paramount Global business. Like there's all sorts of things that could happen by this time next year. So we'll wait and see. And Zaz Live's future is going to hinge on that. Probably not so much on declining numbers over the next couple of quarters. No, look, if you love that, you're going to love our intermission section where Dan does a deep <laughs> dive into the launch of Pluto TV. This is the sort of brain power that um, I, uh, I expect Dan to bring every week. And I think over the course of our three years, he's done it maybe six or seven times. But mm. it's always great to listen to. So uh, thank you, Dan. Looking forward to our intermission. We should get on with the reviews, quite frankly. Franklin's F-R-A-N-K-L-I-N, like Roosevelt. Franklin is in Aretha. Tell him turn himself in before he gets killed. Moses, I need to listen to me. Listen carefully. This is the most important thing you'll ever hear me say. Run, Moses. Run for your life. Okay, Simon, as I said, 61st Street, this is a show that was originally from AMC+. Plus. Nobody saw it there. People are starting to see it now, which is why I thought it was maybe worth talking about. So sure. you can find this one here streaming in Australia on Stan, and I've got both seasons with the second season new episodes rolling out every week. This is a program where, I guess, top level, if you want to know what you're in for, Peter Moffat is the guy that's writing this. So Peter Moffat is probably off. best known... Yeah, I love night off. Night off. He did that. We yeah, with Riz yeah. Ahmed. That was a great skit. And if you're a Stan subscriber, like the thing that will probably be the best sort of connective tissue is Your Honor, which we saw recently. Oh, yes. Yeah. The Cranston one. That's exactly it. So uh, what he specializes in is some um, fairly challenging, morally compromised dramas, which have characters sort of exploring some of the darker parts of their soul, but also in some environments which really make it difficult to want to do the right thing. This is a series about a middle-aged lawyer named, um, oh gosh, what's the character's name? Uh, Franklin Roberts, played by Courtney B. Vance. Uh, He's a guy who's dealing with some uh, urinary tract issues, so that's fairly unpleasant to deal with. Um, So so I understand, but you know. Very Peter Moffat, though. Most of his characters do have some sort of bowel or urinary tract problem. (laughs) (laughs) Look. to believe. Uh, anything with Courtney B. Vance in it, well worth a look. But he's the main character in this one. He's a lawyer who uh, is struggling really to um, prove his worth around the place. But I think he's generally well liked around the place, even if he isn't necessarily delivering the results. Uh, he's got his own family life happening. Uh, his wife is not a career politician, but she just entered politics recently. So that's happening in his life. I'm sure over the course of the season, that's going to become a bigger and bigger issue. But when you watch the first episode, you've got this young guy named Moses. He's an up-and-coming athlete. He's just got a scholarship to go to university. He's going to be a very successful runner, which is what he's been um, scholarshiped for. Uh, He wants to use that scholarship to better his life and take himself out of the ghettos of Chicago. His problem, though, is that obviously the um, lower socioeconomic areas of town are very oppressive. And it's hard for him just to keep his head down. And you find that in this first episode, he's talking to the wrong people at the exact wrong time. The police turn up. They give chase to all the young black men that are there gathered. And so he's there. So he knows that he's going to be caught up in whatever the other guys that he was talking to are involved in. So he knows he just has to get out of there. So he starts running. 
one of the cops starts chasing after him. They have a bit of an altercation. The cop, uh, he ends up pushing the cops to try to get away from him so he can jump a wall and just get out of the situation entirely. They don't know who he is. They don't know his name or anything. He knows if he can just get out, then he is out. But he pushes this cop. The cop stumbles backwards, has a bit of a head injury. Things don't work out so well for that cop. And basically Moses is suddenly facing a homicide charge with a crime with a series of police who are horribly corrupt in a system which is not going to be favorable to him at all. And of course, there's one good lawyer that could possibly help him get out. And that's the opening conceit of the program. Nice one. Okay. So is this is this Obviously, this is an ongoing arc. It's not going to fall into the law and order sort of model where Courtney's got to solve a crime every week. Look, I don't think so. So this is an ongoing storyline, at least as far as the first few episodes are concerned. So my thing coming into this is I actually have no idea where the series is headed, and I'm a bit excited by that. Uh, I, okay. I don't know if we're going to be following Moses through the entire season. Not sure what's going on with him exactly, but we'll find out. Uh, what I can tell you, though, is that this is really high drama. It's very compelling. My wife and I were glued to it on the couch. Episodes are about 42 to 45 minutes long. So it's not even like an hour long thing. It's a fairly breezy drama. And right as you're wondering, oh, how much longer has this episode got? As I do with every hour of TV that I watch, uh, just because I'm always curious, no, you know, am I near the end? What's going on here? Uh, like the episode pretty much concludes. So it's, I, I wouldn't say it's binge worthy because that first hour is so dramatically packed and it's just a bit heavy but it is a show which as is evidenced in my household you'll want to come back and watch an episode every one to two nights and just sort of see it through good that's not a bad thing that's how we grew up watching tv that's that's a, a good way to start things so um all right 61st street could be something i i remember courtney b vance he was one of the submarine officers i know you don't love your submarine movies but he was <laughs> on hunt for red october or was it no he was in crimson tide crimson i think that's true yeah yeah, and he's done a lot of great character actor work over the years, so it's good to see him heading up a series. Actually, sorry, I just, I just did the Google, TV. got onto yeah. the Google, it was Hunt for Red October he's in, which I have seen. Hunt for Red October, yeah. yeah. Which, um, and he's done a lot of work for a long time, so big fan of quite Look, quite I know him as a guest star in basically every TV show that's ever been TV yeah. showed. Uh, yeah. What's probably notable is he was, like his career really sort of broke out entirely in the People vs. O.J. Simpson story where he played Johnny Cochran. Sure. which uh, that was definitely where a lot of people were really paying attention to him. Uh, but the thing that I remember him from, there was that film that had, uh, oh gosh, what's the fellow's name? Uh, a very big fellow played Hellboy in the movie, was the Beast oh, in Ron Beauty Perlman. and the Beast. Ron Perlman. There was that Ron Perlman movie, uh, like The Last Supper, I want to call yeah, it. It was like a late 90s. Cameron Diaz and, yeah, yeah, I remember it. Yeah, uh, so I remember him from that. And then I'm going to I'm no doubt look it up and realize he wasn't in that movie at all, but... That's that's where I know him from in my heart. <laughs> 61st Street is on Stan, I believe you said? Yes, I'm correct. Forward. Or the oh, CW if you're in the US, and maybe it's still on AMC+. Plus. Not too sure. Also in cinemas this week, or if you listen to this next week, probably in the dump bin at your local JB Hi-Fi, is Meg 2, The Trench. Jonas, we need your help. We're detecting increased aquatic activity 25,000 feet deep in the trench. It's an ancient ecosystem untouched by man. Whatever is down there is trying to make its way to the surface. This is a bad idea. Simon, before you give your review, I will say I read a couple of reviews this morning for this, 
And considering that I only read reviews for this this morning, it makes me think it was embargoed right up until the last moment. Never usually a good sign, and the reviews I read definitely suggest not a good sign. Okay, so off topic for a second. All I'm on this little sort of chat group on, on, on Facebook where all us critics are listening, talking to each other, trying to figure out where the previews are and why they're not previewing that. Did you get an invite for this? Um, none of us got an invite to Meg 2 until one guy popped up and said, oh, you know, there is a screening tonight at Event George Street, which is the major cinema here in town where the, the film companies do their, their media previews. Um, turns out they had a large screening of the film, but only for influencers, didn't invite a single reviewer here in the Sydney marketplace, which certainly speaks heaps. Let me backtrack a little bit. I want to... Sorry, can, so, start... sorry Sam, can I just drop in a thought there? Yeah. So we talk about these thing of like influencers and there's always, anytime you go to screenings now, it's a lot of influencers. It's not necessarily critics. And like, yep. that's fine, like whatever. But I will say that of these the many, moment. well, of these many people influencing... I never, I don't know who any of these people are. Like, I am not being influenced to. And there's clearly a problem in the way that this publicity is happening because, you know, who's speaking to me? I feel like I'm in a complete vacuum. Hey, welcome to old age. This is the under 25 crowd they're talking to. These are the people who sort of are only the TikTokers, are only the um, uh, Instagrammers, which I don't think you and I are particularly au fait no. with. Um and you're, I mean, it's quite funny going to media screenings nowadays because you see over in the corner this group of sort of people over 35 with their grey beards and their backpacks and they're the reviewers and then the rest of the room is filled up with these people sort of clicking and smiling and doing pursed lips and all that sort of stuff. So um, that's kind of the media preview crowd at the moment. I mean, I will also say that fair enough, like talks to that young crowd because that is the audience that goes to movies. Like that is what props up big Hollywood opening weekends. Sure. Yeah, all very true. Let's get back to Meg 2 because, oh, I've got a few choice words to say about this. You've seen a clip in the trailer where a little lizard gets eaten by a couple of bigger lizards, which then gets eaten by a Tyrannosaurus, which then sort of they get eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex as it runs out of the bushes. The Tyrannosaurus Rex is then eaten by a Meg that launches itself out of the ocean and pulls the T-Rex into the, into the sea in a whole lot of bloody foam. Yes, Dan Barrett? What is a Meg? <laughs> What is a Meg? Okay, a Megalodon. Um, a Meg is the shortened word. It's what the scientists, I did bunny ears for those listening without video, what the scientists call a prehistoric shark, which I think was fossil records would suggest something like 30 times bigger than your biggest great white shark. So that's what a Meg is. And in the first movie, The Meg, uh, one got free somehow and ate people um, and Jason Statham stopped them. So in the second one, it opens with this dinosaur clip. Now, straight away, my mind goes, okay, these group of little dinosaurs eat a smaller dinosaur. We discover there's this huge carcass there, um, which would not distract a small dinosaur from... To, to go and eat a little dinosaur. Then the T-Rex comes running out of the bush to chase the smaller dinosaurs as well, totally ignoring the carcass. The T-Rex is not is an apex predator, but it will feed on large carcasses of rotting meat to get by. So it wouldn't have chased it anywhere near the water. When the Meg jumps out of the water to get the T-Rex, the weight of the Megalodon would have been so huge it wouldn't have been able to drag itself back into the into the ocean. So we're basically about 40 seconds into the film, and I found at least four points, just from my very cursory knowledge of um, prehistoric 
creatures that get me angry, that upset me. And the tone is set for the rest of this film. Now, this is a particularly stupid movie. Um, it is aimed at people maybe 12 years and younger who've never seen any kind of creature feature. What happens in this film is that Jason Statham leads a group of tech people who are trying to dis uh, explore a, a, a subterranean, submariner type of landscape that is maybe or maybe isn't full of megs. He breaks through that, uh, goes down there, does a bit of exploring. The Megs then follow him up, and people on a resort get eaten. Um, this is essentially the whole plot, but it gets so bogged down. This inexplicably runs for 116 minutes, which is the longest 116 minutes you've ever seen. Now, cinema is over 100 years old, and they've been making monster movies for most of that time. It shouldn't be so tough at this point in time just to make a big, dumb monster movie and make it thoroughly enjoyable on the sort of level that you just have to hit to bring a few chills and a few giggles. And yet, director Ben Wheatley, what on earth is Ben Wheatley doing involved in this film? Wait, wait, ben, made... ben Wheatley made this? He's the director, the man who made <laughs> Kill List, the man who made High Rise, the man who made all these high-profile sort of high IQ type of genre thrillers, he's now making one of the silliest films I've seen in a cinema in a long time. Um, next, Sorry, Simon. Next thing you tell me that Neil Blomkamp is probably making like Gran Turismo. <laughs> I was surprised by that last night too. I saw, wait a minute, this is a Neil Blomkamp film? Um, but the... Ben, I don't, I don't begrudge Ben Wheatley for taking the, the international market dollars to make a movie like this. I do begrudge him that what he has produced is such a lackadaisical, such an uninspired, such a, for a film that should get you revved up to the point of just geely good time fun, it just stays at this morose, moronic level for its entire running time. Um and Statham, he had troubles with the first Meg because he thought the plot line was silly. The first Meg is Citizen Kane compared to Meg to the Trench. Um, so he's clearly in this just for the big dollars. And a lot of Chinese dollars are being forced into this. The, one of the big joys about watching Meg to the Trench is seeing, in fact, maybe the only joy about watching Meg to the Trench is the parade of um, uh, company titles at the start of the film. The Chinese money companies do these beautiful uh, logos at the start of every film they finance. They don't ever be late for a film that's financed by the Chinese people because it's, it's it, they're beautiful to watch. They're by far the most creative thing about Meg to the Trench. Uh, I can't wait. Sorry, is that the end of the review? <laughs> I could blather on because it just gets me angrier and angrier the more I talk about how stupid this is. Um, it, it's the fact that it's crept into cinemas. Um, in the wake of Barbie and Oppenheimer, they don't expect it to be around for very long. Uh, they're not really releasing serious blockbusters while those two films sort of take up all the cinemas they're in. So, um, yeah, this one will be come and gone pretty pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, that you know, is... funny. Can I just say one more thing? Yeah. I went to a 10.30 session yesterday morning, um, in the, yeah, and, and as we walked out, there was a lot of clearly sort of old-school Jason Statham fans and maybe a few fans of the original film. There was maybe like 20 people walking out. Sorry, there were 20 people at a session on a Thursday morning? <laughs> yes, there was. I was surprised. I mean, I know the first film was kind of a hit, so maybe they just wanted to get out. But you've never seen a more despondent, dejected group of people walk out of a cinema at the end of a screening in your whole life. Here we go.
Yes, ben. Sorry, did, did you walk out of a screening for a little film called Star Wars The Phantom Menace? Because I can't imagine that the people were more despondent than the audience for that film. You, you make a good point. I was one of those despondent members. But stumbling out of Meg 2 yesterday, um, I, there was just this constant grumbling of, yeah, it was all right. Yeah, it was kind of stupid. Yeah, okay. It was. It's just one of those. I get so upset when so much effort and so much money, clearly, and a whole lot of technical wizards spend all their time making a movie and what comes out of that effort is Meg to the trench. So here we are. Okay. Uh, let's move on. There's a new TV show on Netflix, new like about a week and a half ago. It's called Captain Fall. You had the worst exams in the history of the Naval Academy. You guys always say that you dread the day he was born and that he's a loser. Mr. Tyrant wants us to take a different approach this time. Instead of finding a captain with certain credentials, he wants us to find a captain with none. Like a wet piece of clay with a license to command the ship. Captain Full Simon is a new animated series. It has the same visual stylings as, well, pretty much every anim other animated series around at the moment. Uh, it's a comedy. The idea of this is that Captain Full, who's played by uh, Jason Risser, who people have seen in him in Things, he is a very good-natured, lovely young man who wants to become a sea captain. He seems to be going to some sort of sea captain school. He's part of a... Yeah, that's right. Uh, he's from a very wealthy family where being a sea captain is something that happens quite regularly within the family. His um, older brother, Tanner, who's voiced by Adam Devine from Workaholics, uh, he is a sea captain himself. He's a bit of a douchebag, but he's more popular and therefore he's a captain on a much bigger ship uh, because Captain Fall, the titular hero of this, uh, nobody really likes him and he's just not particularly that smart or really capable. He finds himself the captain of a ship of a like small little theme park type thing. He takes people backwards and forwards across a small little river. That's where his sea captaining's taken him. Uh, there's an incident with Tanner where Tanner takes control of the ship. There's a big accident, and so Captain Fall loses that job as well. But what's happening at the same time is there is a ship that's being run by a group of criminal ne'er-do-wells who have uh, found that the patsy captain they had captaining their ship has been arrested by the FBI. And that guy, innocent of the charges, but everyone who was working under him on that ship, very much guilty. Captain Fall, he's looking for a job. They go to an employment agency and say, hey, look, who's the worst possible captain we could hire right now? They say Captain Fall. You can see where this is all going. Yeah. That's the and premise the of the series. Yeah, that's exactly. The, yeah, that's the premise for the series. Okay. Fine as a premise. The problem is, as a supposedly laugh-out-loud comedy that's very much aiming for, you know, the guffaws that you find in all the other sort of adult-oriented animated comedies... None of the jokes are any good. It's all efforts to be laugh out loud funny. Every joke falls flat. I don't think I laughed a single time during the episode, which is a shame because I was kind of hoping for at least a good little chuckle out of this. I'd had a good time with the Futurama reboot last week and I was kind of primed for like another animated comedy right now. Doesn't hit the mark at all. But what's weird about this program is all the dramatic elements of it are actually fairly compelling. So there's moments where, like, it gets very much into, um, like, crime spy kind of stuff. And when that's happening, you just kind of wish that the show just jettisoned all the comedy entirely and played as a straight drama. 
at the beginning of this, we talked about 61st Street, which was an animated, oh, sorry, a drama from AMC+. Plus. Okay. It got me thinking about AMC+. Plus and another show that nobody watched on that streaming service is this really good animated drama series called Pantheon. Now, it oh, dawns on me yeah. that one of the big things happening in the world right now is the rise of anime. And you look at the success of that and you look at how much Netflix is leaning into anime as a genre. You look at how much, how many dollars anime drives around the world right now. And then you look at the American anime, animation market where they just keep on churning out these really dopey, unfunny animated comedies like Captain Fall. And yet the very few times that they try these dramatic things, it's only networks who are right on the margins of things making stuff like Pantheon, which doesn't get seen. Okay, I don't understand why a company like Netflix can't look at something like Pantheon and say, look, within America, we can make this sort of quality drama. Why not actually invest a little bit more in that and have some American high quality drama from an animated standpoint? Instead, it just seems like we're squeezing these dramatic conceits in something like Captain Fall and the show is terrible. It doesn't work. I don't really plan to go back to it. But also part of me in the back of my brain is just thinking, I kind of want to know where that narrative is going because it was kind of interesting. and. Oh, it's it's frustrating, Simon. What's the animation style on Captain Four? Because Pantheon was a beautiful, beautiful looking film. The animation was gorgeous to look at. Um, yeah. is this a two cell? Is it traditional animation, or is the is it the sort of GIF style CGI stuff that we've sort of got to suffer through to get to the laughs or non laughs? Okay. It is a TV show that looks exactly the same as every other animated TV show around at the moment. So it looks a bit like Futurama, or it looks a bit like Disenchanted, or it looks a bit like it Archer. It looks a little bit like Archer. Yeah, Archer. looks a bit like Archer, yeah. looks a little bit like F is for Family, looks a little bit like Barry Jack Horseman, looks a little bit like Big uh, Mouth, looks a little bit like Bob's Burgers, looks a bit... That's Like, they all just look generically the same these days. Uh and Pantheon the, didn't. Pantheon looked beautiful. Yeah, no, that was great. Pantheon is, you know, top level. That's what you want to, like, ultimately reach for. If people haven't seen Pantheon, please watch Pantheon. That was fantastic TV. But this seems like every I other... The, I interviewed the creator of it over on our YouTube channel, so that's worth having a look at. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Terrific yeah. show. All right, so Captain Ford, you're having a good week with reviews this week, aren't we? <laughs> oh, we have it. Let's move on. What's, what's the next thing on the... What's, what's on the dock now? Hidden Strike? It's a team of international criminals. The biggest oil heist in history. It's not personal. These guys are a little bit on the edge. You guys do nicknames? <sighs> Bald Eagle. Tomb Raider. Full disclosure, there's a lot going on here. Okay, Simon, on a scale of... One to ten, ten being the best, one being the yeah. least, and let's yeah. maybe pigeonhole this again. On a scale of one to three, where does this sit? <laughs> yeah, look, it's certainly at the low end of the one to three scale. On the simometer, this rates well down uh, on this year's releases. Um, I do want to point out very briefly that there are two quite small films in the cinemas at the moment, uh, Miracle Miracle Club, I think it's called, with Laura Linney and About My Father with Robert De Niro that I just couldn't get to this week because of festival stuff and home stuff. So um, I have settled on Meg 2, which I decided to see on the big screen, and this one, Hidden Strike, which is uh, a film that is being released on Netflix in 2023 but was actually shot 
on a whole series of green screen stages five years ago, Jackie Chan and John Cena, two big names in their own right. John Cena looks so young in this. This was before Peacemaker. This was before the last couple of Fast and the Furious films. Um, he is a a different looking actor to what I've seen him in more recently. And that's because this film directed by Scott Moore, who has been given the reins to the next Expendables movie, um, uh, corralled these two stars with a lot of Chinese backing, a lot of Chinese money, again, beautiful opening logos um, to make this, what is a sort of mishmash hybrid of contemporary setting, but also Mad Max style desert, car chases and action it's all about these two sort of anti-heroes jackie chan and john cena who are thrown together in the middle of an oil war they've got to make the run from a oil factory under attack across the highway of death to baghdad um all the while trying to save a small group of, of villages in the area it's the most generic 90s buddy action sort of setup um, that uses very C-grade 2020-style CGI. So much about this film looks fake to the point that there's a couple of CGI-generated stunt sequences which verge on two-cell two animation-style quality that look completely um, chintzy. Having said that, doing my research for this review, I found out this film cost $80 million to make has literally sat on the shelf for the last five years and has a global box office taking of $2.7 million. So we are talking about a major loss. I don't think the um, the logos are going to be that flash from here on in if these Chinese backers have got to save a bit of money because uh, this film has cost a lot, looks cheap as chips, um, and has plonked down on one of the streamers on Netflix with so little fanfare, considering the people involved, that it has to be considered one of the big dogs of either this year, 2023, or 2017 when it was made. I'm not quite sure. Chuck it into both years as the, one of the year's worst. Yeah, so I was a bit confused by this one because each week I put out this newsletter where I talk about the new and returning shows of the week, and I include the Netflix movies and a few others in there as well. I saw this and thought, oh, this is a new movie. And then I looked into it and I'm like, oh, no, this is actually a bit older. It's just debuting on Netflix this week. Uh, so from what I understand, it actually got a release in cinemas across Asia, but not a big release. So it certainly saw some stuff there. But I think it's been available on like the direct-to-video market for some time. So I'm sure they've probably made a bit of money that isn't necessarily reported as cleanly through that. So it may not necessarily be a huge loss, but like, you know, it, it certainly is what it is. It was for me for a hundred and... Can I ask a question? Why did you watch this and not They Killed Tyrone, which is also on Netflix? Well, sir, as someone who follows me closely on Letterboxd, you will know that I did they, I did watch They Cloned Tyrone, and I had planned to review that last week when it was on the running sheet, but it was deleted from the running sheet, so I didn't review it. And I now, you are absolutely right, in hindsight, I should have reviewed They Cloned Tyrone, Tyrone with Jamie Foxx and... Um, John Boyega. What's his name? John Boyega, which I really liked a lot. I thought it was a super cool film. So I, maybe I will review that next week. It's on Netflix as well and definitely worth your time. Well, I'm certainly glad you took time out to talk about Hidden Strike, a five-year-old movie on Netflix. <laughs> 
Oh my god! I I knew of Hidden Strike. I knew that Cena had made a film with Jackie Chan, and 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 that there was terrible production problems. So I did want to have a look at it, and and I know it has just dropped on on Netflix. Although it's just dropped on Netflix, and it's on IMDb as I look at it now with the twenty twenty three um, production year. So it's it's only just sort of stumbling its way to to US audiences, I guess, and Netflix audiences, but. Yeah, don't watch Hidden Strike. If you're a fan of the, either of these actors, just ignore it and go and watch They Clone Tyrone with Jamie Foxx and John Boyega because it's terrific. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's intermission time. That's right, folks. It's time for intermission now. I have decided to hand this right over to Mr. Dan Barrett because it's his area of expertise. Uh, it was announced through the week. Uh, I first read it in Variety, but I think I know it was covered in a lot of places and specifically on the, the terrific Always Be Watching newsletter. Please subscribe. Uh, Pluto TV is launching in Australia with a 50-ish strong channel um, that is going to cover a whole lot of programming options for the Australian audience. But what is Pluto TV? Um, how will viewers access it? Um, there's a lot of questions that are raised by exactly what Pluto TV is. Settle in, Dan Barrett's going to do one of his deep dives into the uh, TV landscape and introduce you to Pluto TV. Okay, I'm going to try to keep this as brief as possible. Uh, so look, let's maybe address the question first, like what is Fast TV? So yes. if people don't know what Fast TV, it's an acronym that's... So in the same way that you hear about SVODs, which is Subscription Video On Demand, Fast TV is free ad-supported television. So what that means is basically any website where you go to where you can stream some video and you're not really paying for it, it's just purely through the ads that are streaming is paying for your access to it. Now, what it usually means and the way that Fast TV is considered as a platform isn't so much that, uh, like TV is probably the key word in it. It's old school linear streams of television. So when you flip on the TV and you see Channel 9 playing, for example, it's exactly the same kind of experience, but it's streaming instead of being broadcast. Okay. And usually on these fast channels is that the expense of running that channel is kept as cheaply as possible. So what a lot of the content is that you find on these fast channels is uh, there's a number of types of things. So there's some channels which are just literally one TV show that's just playing as like a linear loop. So for example, in Australia, you can get like a Baywatch channel, okay? And it's nothing but episodes right. of the old school Baywatch TV program from episode one through to when they go to Hawaii and then after Hawaii, when the show got canceled, it just starts again at episode one and carries right through. I so think that's un I think that's under the 10, one of, that's one of the 10 uh, well, channels, we'll, isn't it? Like we'll talk about that in a little bit. But like that, okay. that's the idea. So there might be a Baywatch channel. Uh, there's like Twilight Zone channels. There's uh, Beverly Hills 90210 channel in the US. Uh, sometimes they're like well-known shows like that. Other times they might be sort of retro picks like in on Pluto TV yeah, in the US. Yeah. There's a Rawhide channel, for example. Yeah, there's yeah, a like Rifleman channel. There's an Adams Family channel. There was a Wings channel for a little while. There's a Family Ties channel. Uh, then you also find we that there's it. some, yeah. Then you find that there's some versions of that. So for example, there's a Happy Days channel, but it doesn't just play Happy Days shows. It also plays things from the extended Happy Days universe of shows. So things right. like Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy shows that were all spin-offs from that original series and they will just play randomly. Uh, case in point, Nano's Who I Know also plays Melrose Please episodes. There's a Star Trek channel which plays, you know, the various Star Treks from around the place. So okay. you find that. 
So you've got those types of channels. Then there's some theme channels. So there might be like a drama channel that plays nothing but dramatic shows. Uh, there might be a best of British channel, which has just nothing but British TV programs. Um, sorry to our YouTube viewers just then. I was trying to kill an ant and had to move my laptop out of the way. So got some crazy cinematography happening then. Okay. So, oh, God. Second ant. What's going on in here? Taking over. It's the tropical climate that you live in. They're everywhere. No, uh, there's just two. Anyhow. Um, so you've got like those um, theme channels, but you might get a movie channel. So it'll be like a theme. So it might be the action movie channel. Um, so it's just yep. nothing but action movies. There might be a um, kung fu movie channel. There could be a comedy these channel. Are all different to, Best these of are all 90s. different to the pop-up channels that appear on Foxtel and stuff, aren't they? These are, these are a yeah. different so, sort of long-term programming. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the Foxtel thing in a moment and how it's a bit different. So you've got those types of channels. You've got other channels which might be like news channels, for example. So, for example, um, Sky News uh, UK could be available in the US or Australia as a fast channel as opposed to like something else. So you might find them. Most of the time, though, it's a lot of those sort of low-rent right-wing news channels from the US. So things like Newsmax and all that kind of gear. Oh, those ones that you keep sending me clips from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, Simon, finally, the truth is being told. Will you not listen? <laughs> so you'll find those channels that might be music video channels where it's nothing but, you know, 1980s music clips, 1970s, uh, metal, like whatever, hip-hop channels, uh, classic music. You'll find that kind of gear. Uh, this is largely what Fast is. So it's basically cheap content that they're able to pull together and bring to an audience as cheap and um, economic fashion as possible, but offer a lot of it. The result for you as a viewer is that there's a whole bunch of things to sit back mindlessly and just like skim through until it just happens to fall upon something. Now, there's value to these channels that play nothing but a specific show in that you might kind of like that show, but there'd be nothing that would compel you to want to watch that show. Because in the modern era, we watch TV shows from episode one. So, for example, I mentioned it was a Beverly Hills 90210 channel that you can get in the US. Mm. You sit down and watch that because you like 90210 and you can just flip on the channel because you're a bit bored or half asleep on the couch or a bit drunk oh, or whatever. And you'll find whatever random episode is on, you're probably happy to jump into that one halfway through and just watch that episode. And you can catch up because it's just 90210. Like, who cares? Okay. But, like, you know, you just want to watch something for 20 odd minutes. It's on. And it feels like TV used to feel. But there's no way that you press play on episode one, season one of Beverly Hills 90210, because then you're committing to the idea of watching 10 seasons of that program, as opposed mm. to the way that we used to just watch TV, which was just random sampling around the place. Okay, okay. so this that's- This would also work really well for anthology stuff. Like you mentioned the Twilight Zone, you could just click perfect. and jump in at any thing. That's great. Yeah, okay. or like you could watch an old Mission Impossible from like 1966, and it's like, oh, I'll just watch this hour, where you probably wouldn't think to actually watch that as the thing. And so what I'm moving towards here is the value of fast TV, which is that it is delivering this experience, experiential element of TV, which we haven't really delved into much in the last 10 years as we've been watching more and more SVOD services. So we've gotten accustomed to the idea of watching shows as full seasons and not really episodically, which is how TV used to work. And also dropping out of that means that we haven't really been watching music videos in that same way or all these other sorts of things, which make up a full and robust TV diet, but it wasn't there. And what Fast TV is, sorry, so I'll just get to you on a second. What Fast TV is, is it is not 
lean forward television where you're making active choices. It is lean back television, which is how most TV we watch is generally consumed. You watch TV while you're doing the ironing, while you're looking after the kid, while you're talking to your partner and not listening to your partner because you're actually more interested in the Mission Impossible episode that's on. Like you've got all these other ways that you watch TV that isn't dedicated viewing. To which I would also say there's a benefit to fast TV in that these older content episodes, these, this, the older way of watching TV, we're also used to ads in them. So mm. we're not so upset that our episode of Beverly Hills 90210 or Chips or whatever is broken up with ads that allow us to watch this because that's exactly how we remember watching them back in the day. Yeah, so there's definitely a nostalgia play that works well for older viewers in regards to this. But I'd also say that for younger viewers who are less accustomed to ads than they used to be, it's probably not such a big deal because, one, we are actually watching SVOD services with more ad-supported plans coming through. Oh, sure. So, I mean, I know myself, I flipped from the $16.99 Netflix plan to a $6.99 plan. That's exactly the same technologically and what you're able to get for it. The only difference is that it drops in occasional ad through it. And I don't mind that trade-off for 10 bucks a month. Yep. Like, that's fine. But you are finding more and more viewers are taking to those plans. So, it doesn't feel that far out of the way that people are watching these programs anymore so it's less generational than you may think all right so this intermission section i did sort of break down a few of the questions which you've already answered what programming makes it unique and interesting you've answered um does old content get remastered for this hd broadcasting is it hd broadcasting what are we what what's the tech requirements that we need to watch fast tv and is the old content going to look any good Okay, so US-wise, and it depends on the service that you're watching, like, you know, there's lots of variables, but most often they're sort of reaching into the libraries of content that they have remastered and is there an either standard definition at the lowest or there is some high definition um, services piping through. So you are getting generally sort of better quality and the shows are looking a bit better than you've probably seen them in the olden days when you might have watched a Mission Impossible episode, for example, at three in the morning when nine randomly just like started running them. Okay, so you've got that. So you'll be able to watch things in like fairly good quality. And don't forget, mostly shows got remastered for DVD through the 2000s well, as exactly. well. So that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. You've got that. They're not, so, are they going to blow them up to widescreen to the 16.9 thing like they did with The Simpsons a couple of years ago? And, and no. Nah, I mean, generally, just whatever masters that have been provided uh, tends to okay. be the thing. But you'll find a lot of, uh, you know, four by three um, content on there. Uh, what probably we need to talk about, because I don't want the segments to go forever is just talking about the fact that Pluto TV is the biggest one of them in the US. So in the US, it's got like 250, 300 channels of content. They've, what, it's owned by Paramount Global, which means it's got access to a lot of the older cable TV assets they've got. So a lot of MTV content on there. You find that they've got a lot of old school TV programs on there. I mentioned Mission Impossible. That's part of the Paramount Library. A lot of these old Westerns are old Paramount TV programs that I've got the rights to. Um, there's a whole lot of Cheers that you find on US Pluto TV. And Cheers is part of the Paramount Library. So they're, like, they're leaning into that in a really big way. And they've got such a deep library, they really can populate this in a really major way. So Pluto TV is the biggest one. And to access it in the US, you just literally download a Pluto TV app. You press the app to load up the app. And then suddenly things just start streaming. So Beautiful. this brings us to Pluto TV launching in Australia. How is it different? What's the experience? So Pluto TV, when it launches here, and it's going to launch in Australia on the 31st of August. I think that's right. Definitely like last day or two of August. 
And in Australia, they're going to launch with 50 channels to begin with. And like, that's pretty substantial. It's more than you found them launching with in the UK, for example. But the last couple of Pluto TV launches around the world have been at about that 50 channel mark. They've announced the following channels for it, okay, which is a South Park channel, playing nothing but South Park, MTV Reality, playing all the reality shows from MTV, The Shores, and that's your Jersey Shore, that's your um, other shores. What else is there? There's the UK one. Dinosaur. I don't, I, I don't know that Dinosaur is necessarily being featured on that channel. Um, Look it up, kids. <laughs> uh, obviously, star of the great Empty Nest sitcom from the mid-80s. Uh, mid yeah. uh, sorry, mid-90s, I think, for Empty Nest. Uh, Nick Classics, Nickelodeon Tunes, um, and that's, sorry, Nickelodeon Classics. It's not classics starring people named Nick. Like, you're not going to find the Family's Highest spinoff Um there's something about Nick. I can't remember the name of that show. doesn't matter. Oh, so this is why, this is why sorry. So I'm quickly just finishing. I'm yeah, sorry. Just finishing. Yeah. Let me just finish the list and we'll talk about the Fox television. Um, so I love Lucy's got a channel on there. Happy days has got a channel. Dynasty's going to have a channel. And you look at that lineup and you can actually say all these channels are currently streaming on 10 play. And they are because in the last couple of days, these channels have all sort of la uh, launched on there. So if you go to the 10 play app, the catch up app for channel 10, there's a tab that says live TV and you can find a whole bunch of these channels coming through. Okay. There's a whole bunch of channels on 10 play, which haven't been announced for Pluto TV, but I'm pretty sure that you're probably going to start seeing uh, MTV dating, MTV entertainment, MTV biggest pop, MTV love, MTV reality. I've mentioned reality. Uh, there's a Traders channel, there's MasterChef, there's Survivor Australia, wow, there's okay. Baywatch, which we mentioned, Prisoner, old school Prisoner episodes just play out through the thing. Uh, that UK drama from the 90s, Merlin, Rush, Wipeout, the thing that's like, it's a knockout, but not quite. Movie Sphere, which is actually pretty good, and we're going to get back to that in a moment. Um, Nick Jr., Nick Teen, like all those things. And that brings us to Foxtel, which is that MTV stuff used to be on Foxtel, just got pulled yes. from there. And the reason is, is they want to sort of own it and power a lot of their own stuff through it. They make more money sure. through this. And the thing to note is that when Paramount Global bought uh, Pluto TV a few years ago, they paid, let's say it was like $80 million or something for it. Like it wasn't nothing, but then they made like about $500 million in revenue the next year in ad sales alone. So mm. there is money to be made from this and there's definitely an audience for it. But where we're handicapped in Australia is that it's only going to exist within the 10 play app and not through the dedicated Pluto TV app, which means you've got a few click throughs to get to it. And that's what I think is going to be the real stumbling block here. I don't think you're going to find that there's going to be the massive take up on this app because much like on um, the seven plus app, much like on a couple of the other apps that have the catch other fast channels on it. Yeah. It's kind of hidden within another app. It's not that easy lean back experience because it is all about lean back. It's about the least amount of effort you can make to just start watching something. And when you need to yeah. click several well, buttons to start watching cool. something random, that's too much. That I did not realize that. I thought it was going to be a standalone TV channel. I didn't know it was going to be part of the drop down. So you're scrolling yeah. down through the 10 play page to get to the fast TV app that'll get you to the Pluto page. Well, you're loading up, like, you know, if you've got a 10-play app on your TV, which you probably do, load up the app, find the live TV segment, then find the channel you want. It should be load up the app, a channel starts playing, you find another channel to watch. And also 10-play, you have to log into that app. So whether that'll still be the case in a month's time, not sure. Another barrier to entry, more friction. Where does the name come from? Why is it called Pluto TV? 
Uh, because, you know, 10 years ago when a guy launched the service, he called it Pluto TV. I don't know. It's just, uh, it is what it is. All right. Yeah. Well, on that, on that hazy bit of uh, <laughs> uh, not knowledge, much further to go with this is, are you? I mean, you've been a Pluto fan for a while. I know you mentioned this back in the day and you used to binge some of your favorite old shows on the, the US version of this. So you must be happy. Yeah, look, I, look, I am happy because I think that fast TV just provides that missing um, TV experience that I just don't think that we've really had for like the last decade of SVODs. Uh, like, I think it provides access to a lot of older content in a way that makes sense for that content because not all TV is meant to be watched on demand. A lot of TV is supposed to just be TV you stumble across. Like that is actually part of the TV experience. And this provides that element of experience. It is just lean back and forget television in a way that I, I think a lot of us have been hungering for that sort of thing. So it fills a need, which is important. Uh, but between Pluto TV and also Samsung TV Plus, if you've got a Samsung TV, you can access like their content. They've got about 85 channels currently up and running. And you know, there's a bunch of like decent movie channels on there. There's um, a bunch of dedicated TV channels. There's some retro stuff in there. There's Australian retro stuff. Like Samsung's doing a really good job in this space right now. Pluto TV at launch is not going to be as good as what Samsung are currently offering. But the Pluto experience in the US, I think, is so strong that if they can start sort of getting to that level of parity, like it's going to be the leading um, force in Australia. Just to wrap this up, I want to ask, can you ever see a time where H, where, where TV almost comes full circle and high-quality HBO-type content like we talked about earlier, The Sopranos, Sex and the City, all that sort of House of Dragons and all that sort of thing? Mm. Can you see a time where people are willing to pay less for that to go back to the ad inserted, the fast TV? Oh, well, they are now. Watch those well, they are now. Show. Like this is this is what I was talking about earlier, which is that uh, you know you can pay less for Netflix now and get ads in your Netflix. And get ads, exactly. In the US, yeah. HBO oh. Max, which then became Max, like you can get an ad-supported version of that. Hulu's got ads. Like Paramount Plus is all going to have ads. Like this is the experience now that people are happy paying less money for. Um, Hulu in the US, I read a stat the other day that said ninety percent of its subscribers are on an ad-supported model. So people are comfortable viewing ads again through these services because cost of living's going up. People want to be able to access this TV. So the ad-supported versions are the cheap and easy way to be able to do it. There is that trade-off, but people are happy to make that. The question is, could that content make their way into a linear schedule like Pluto TV and the other fast channels offer? And I would say the actual strength of the fast TV services is not that you're watching first-run content, but really you're watching old favorites and just random TV stuff that you may not have expected to watch. Right. Always fun talking about this sort of stuff, Dan Barrett. No one knows this sector, this sphere of the entertainment industry like you do. Um, it's called Pluto TV, August 31, we believe. It's dropping here in Australia. Um, you'll be able to keep up with everything that's happening in the fast TV um, realm with uh, my good mate, Dan Barrett, who knows his stuff. Well done, Dan. Yeah, I didn't even mention Vivo or Bloomberg in any of that. Okay, Dan, well, I'm going to start this one because you've been talking now for what feels like an hour. Um, what else have I been watching, you ask? Well, I stumbled across a film that I've been meaning to watch for a long time. It's a 1983 movie called Testament. It's been released on Blu-ray from the team at Imprint Video. They, If you look up there on my shelf, can you see that? Oh, no, it's just out of shot. They're all my imprint ones. I've got Testament, Jacob's Ladder, 
the great Robert Shaw. There he is again in Black Sunday. Uh, Jeremy Irons in Damage. Um, they do these great remasters of, of old of old uh, films, eighties films. Um, you know what? You should keep back there. A what? spare microphone so your voice can be picked up when you start turning around your head. <laughs> yeah, I was worried you were going to pick up on that. Um, Testament stars Jane Alexander as a suburban mum. William Devane plays the husband. Um, with almost no warning at all, they're so removed from the world's political debate, um, an atomic bomb goes <laughs> off uh, far enough away from their house to not be swept up in the um, uh, terrible impact that is incredibly realised in the Oppenheimer film for those that have seen it. But what does start to happen is the fallout starts to hit this small suburban um, suburb. And uh, what we find going forward is the impact of, of radiation on this small suburban community. I put this up on my letterbox page and film director Criv Stenders, we sort of follow each other on Facebook, he came back to me, Jesus Christ, Testament, the most depressing movie ever made. <laughs> And he's not wrong. It's a tough watch. It's got a young couple in it played by uh, Kevin Costner and Rebecca de Mornay in two of their very earliest roles. Um, he went on to bring down Elliot Ness and she went on to have sex with Tom Cruise on the train. Um, it's good to see them in early roles. It is a tough movie to watch, but it shows, A, that studios used to make this sort of thing back in the 80s. I can't imagine any studio touching something like this now. Uh, and, B, we were all terrified that this was going to happen to all of us back in the 80s when the atomic sort of terror was around us. So uh, hopefully it never does. So it's called Testament. It is available on Blu-ray from Imprint. You had me at William Devane. So <laughs> what, what else have I been watching? Glad you asked. Uh, actually, a whole bunch of things that I plan to talk about in the coming weeks on this show, but embargoes mean I can't talk about them. So the question I want to say is, the question isn't so much what have I been watching, but the question is what haven't I been watching? Oh. Okay, and I just want... I didn't understand it, so but now I do get it. Yeah. So, something I've been thinking about, because I was talking about 61st Street, a show that was on AMC Plus purchased for the CW, because the CW are trying to stack their service with a whole bunch of things they don't have to pay a huge amount of money for. One of the things that the CW have been doing is going around the world, buying up some TV shows from around the place. So, mm -hmm. if you're a fan of Bump, which uh, Stan have insisted for years in publicity emails to him. He's Australia's favourite family. And it's like, well, no, fuck off. I don't really know who they are, let alone they're being Australia's favourite family. Like, no one talks about them. I don't know what bump is. Yeah, no, exactly. But they're Australia's favourite family, Simon. But anyway, if you're not in the US... Australian. If you're in the, I mean, not most Australian, Simon, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but if you're in the US, you can watch Bump or not because the ratings haven't been great for a lot of the CW um, foreign imports. Uh, you can watch Bump there. Something else you can watch in the US now are some Canadian comedies and two, which I'm sure I've mentioned on this podcast about a year or so ago. Uh, there's one called Run the Burbs, which is from the guy that created Kim's Convenience. And then you've also uh, yeah, got uh, Children Ruin Everything, which is a... Uh, it's like a family comedy sitcom, but it's not really particularly treacly. It sort of comes from a more cynical parental sort of viewpoint on aren't kids Very awful, Canadian. but they're also kind of cool to have at the same time sort of a viewpoint. Very dry Canadian humor. Dry Canadian humor. And what got me thinking about these two shows is that one, neither of these shows are available in Australia, but also two, why are most Canadian shows not available in Australia? The thing is, if you think about the Canadian, Canadian like humor. comedic sensibility, but also their dramatic sensibility, not entirely dissimilar to Australia's sensibility. Not at okay? all. Very similar. 
okay? Why are they just not picked up by Australian networks at all? Like, why can't you get on to Binge? And uh, this is a coded message to my pals at Binge who may be listening to this podcast. Uh, also, Stan, I've got friends working over at Stan that could also take this information on board. Um, or any of the other networks where I also know people. Guys, why are you not buying Canadian product? It's sitting there. It's easy to consume. It's got a very strong crossover element. Why are the only Canadian shows that we get here, Letterkenny, and then random episodes of Corner Gas that occasionally play on SBS? Why is that the case? Because this stuff, like, it's not going to be like ratings gold. It's not going to be the most viewed things, but surely it can't cost that much money and there'll be an audience for it. Like, think about the you number of people sorry, that watch. Eh? Think about the number of people that still watch Degrassi, uh, but also maybe more currently, Kim's Convenience. That show was fairly popular. Like, it's, it's not, not like so this far shows. back. Yeah. I heard my wife scream, oh my God, from the living room. And I thought she'd stubbed her toe. And what she'd really done was stumble across old episodes of Degrassi. People adore <laughs> that show. And yeah. uh, you're right. It's when it, when the Canadian stuff hits our shores, it, it, it finds an audience. Let it, I mean, Letter Kenny's a cash cow for whoever picks it up. And, and what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, I mean, there's Corner Gas, which plays on. Corner Gas, that's right. Yeah. Uh, which is led by this guy named Brett Bart, which I think is a great name. Okay. Yeah. Um, also, uh, Shits, Shits Creek is another great example. Canadian well, comedy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, this stuff plays. Like, why not give more of it a chance? Hunt it out. Make the deals. That's what I'm saying. If you're listening to us in Canada, get in touch with us at screen at screenwatching, oh, no, screenwatchingpodcast at gmail.com, um, and we'll pass your messages on to the uh, programmers here on Australian television. Let's get your shows on our TV screens. We're here for you, Canada. Um Canada, something like that. Okay, there we go. We've ranted on well past the hour, Mark. This was meant to be a short show. <laughs> Let's very quickly do the, the in history segment. Dan Barrett, questions coming to you August 7, 2018. Which Australian actress is cast as the CW Network's Batwoman? Gee, it's been a very CW y show this day. Yeah. Uh, who was cast as Batwoman? Look, I object to the word actress being used in this, but we are talking about star of the original Meg, one Ruby Rose. Love Ruby Rose. Don't say nasty things about her. On August 10, 2021, it's a movie. I made that up. It's not real, tweeted screenwriter Akiva Goldsman amid rumours that COVID-19 vaccines could turn people into zombies. Which of his movies was he referring to? God, what the hell's the name of that movie? It's the one with Will Smith in New York. Um, it's and got the, the and the zombies. Yeah, it's got the Batman versus Superman poster in the background, which got a lot of nerds very excited. Uh, it is. It's based on the Amiga Man. I can't think of the name of the based film. Based on Last Man on Earth. It's called I Am Legend. I still think it's Will Smith's best movie. Okay, and August 12, 1988, which Martin Scorsese movie was released to howls of protest? By religious zealots everywhere. Yeah, it was Last Man on Earth. Sorry, uh, Kundun. No. No? Uh, Last Temptation of Christ. Kundun's in the... Oh, 88. Sorry, I, yeah. I read that as 98. Uh, yes, no, it was The Last Temptation of Christ with <laughs> Can... uh, the... What? <laughs> uh, with, with the great uh, Willem Dafoe. Now, Willem can I tell you about the time that I watched that movie? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I'd not seen the film before. I've only ever seen it the once. Okay. Yeah. But I had a copy on my computer and I thought, you know what? I've got a two and a half hour flight from Melbourne to Brisbane. I'm going to sit here and watch oh, this boy. on a plane. Boy, did I start regretting that. 
Oh, what was it? The scenes with Barbara Hershey as a not so Virgin Mary? <laughs> All sorts of scenes, Simon. All sorts of scenes. <laughs> Wow. Yes, The Last Temptation of Christ. Boy, it caused a big stink back in its day. This week's birthdays. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. This is a fun one. I don't know if you'll get this. August 5, 1951, John Jarrett. August 6, 1973, Vera Farmiga. August 7, 1942, American actor Tobin Bell. And August 9, 1968, Gillian Anderson. Well, what if I... What could the birthdays all have in common? So the connection isn't that I've met them, because I can say that for 50% of them, but not 100%. Who have you met? I've met John Jarrah and Gillian Anderson. Wow, have you really? I've met Briefly. Jarrah. I haven't met any of the other ones. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, that's, that's my name dropping. You're not the only one that's allowed to do that. <laughs> So, John Jarrett, as we all know, played Mick in Wolf Creek, a serial killer. Vera Farmiga was in Bates Mary's Hell, playing Mrs. Bates, who I believe got a little bit of um, blood under her fingernails herself. Tobin Bell, and this is the one that tipped me off as to what was going on here, uh, I believe is the killer from the Saw films, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And then Gillian Anderson... Initially, I thought, well, she took on a lot of serial killers in selected episodes of The X-Files... Uh, starting with the episode Irresistible, but with a number of other episodes along the way. But that didn't quite seem right. Then I remembered she joined the cast of Hannibal from the second season in a recurring role and became a fairly prominent character from the third season, where she joined Hannibal on a murderous spree across Europe. You know, not the answer I had, but I'm <laughs> going to give it to you for bringing... What, what other answer is there? Skills. Well, it's just that they've all fronted a horror franchise or they've all fronted a, 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 uh, a scary movie franchise. Hey, Simon, Wolf try Creek. harder. Try harder. Uh, well, hey, I did not expect you to lean into it with such um, enthusiasm. So we just run through it from my point of view. Um, Wolf Creek for Mick Jarrett, uh, for John Jarrett, uh, Vera Farmiga from the Conjuring series, Gillian Anderson from X-Files, Tobin Bell from Saw. So they were all front and centre of their own sort of horror genre franchise. But you really went deep on that. I did not know Gillian Anderson was in the, the Hannibal series. Well, I don't think most people did. It was not a widely viewed program. Wow. You have you have brought your A-game to this episode of Screen Watching, my friend. I'm very excited to be part of this with you for this week. Yeah, thanks. Just do what I can. Just trying to make a good quality product here, Simon. All right. Read my words over at screen-space.net or at screenspace on Facebook. Screen watching is all over your socials. Uh, our Facebook page is at screen watching podcast, at screen underscore watching for the Twitter. Do we still call it Twitter or is it X now? Don't know. And the screen watching YouTube channel, which I've got to get some new stuff up on. Haven't done that for a while. Screen watching podcast at gmail.com for all your emails to us. You can find me at the Dan Barrett's on X or on Threads. Uh, you can also find me on Blue Sky at Dan Barrett's, uh, dot B Sky dot, uh, however that works. I don't know. Uh, you can start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. Find that one at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Fridays, I've got the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows and movies that launched that week. Also, feel free to reach out and tell me about the fancy new opening titles to this podcast and how much you love them. Yes. You've done a great job. You've really put in the effort. This is this is very enthusiastic from, from you over the last couple of weeks. There's been an absolute uh, refocusing of your commitment to the podcast, which is very exciting. I had an extra half hour. 
Good, okay. Um, don't forget, if you go to the Podlink site, you can follow Screen Watching there, um, download it on all your favourite podcast apps. Um, load it up now and hit the follow button, as it's written here that we never read out, but we probably should. Um, Gran Turismo next week, my friend, directed by one Neil Bloomcamp, friend of the show. Um, do you know what you're reviewing? <laughs> Oh, Simon. Uh, well, actually, no, I do know one of the things. So I'm going to talk about the new HBO documentary series called Telemarketers, which is, it was built as a comedy. Uh, there's some comedically orientated people behind it and also the Safdie brothers. Um, I will say not really as funny as I thought it would be, but still uh, it's definitely an experience watching it. It's an experience to watch it. I, I had a dream last night that I went to high school with Gal Gadot because I'm reviewing her film next week, Heart of Stone, the new Netflix one. Um, yes, it was. A, I just remembered that. It was a very strange dream. We were just chummy. It wasn't one of those dirty old man dreams that I occasionally have with Gal Gadot. This was like a serious um, sort of high school set dream. Were, were you high school aged at the time or both of you in your current ages? I'm not a 56 year old walking around high schools. No, I was in I was in high school mode. I dream about my high school a lot. I mean, I both when I'm asleep and when I'm awake. I think. Please tell me you got a bit of the salt and pepper as a 16 year old kid in your dreams. <laughs> I had far less hair back then. No, I was. Yeah, it was a strange dream. She's very lovely, Gal. I'm looking forward to watching the film. Um, all right, I got to go and do some work. I got a festival to run, and you've got stuff to do. Do you still have a job? Uh, I hope so. Let me log off and I'll find out. Bye, Dan. See you, Simon.